everybody. Okay, we're going to jump right in. Uh, Drew mentioned how we can become lost and disoriented, and I'm going to start with the story of the most lost and disoriented I've ever been in my life. So this is San Antonio, and when I was 16, I was full of confidence in my ability to navigate this simple city where all the roads make sense and they never change directions and there's no crazy loops going around and it's all on a grid just perfectly just like New York City, right? Wrong. Better yet, I don't even live in San Antonio. I lived in New Braunfels, which is up I-35 off the screen. But my cousin, and if my map assistant will draw a little circle around our green park where my destination is, my cousin was playing baseball at O.P. Schnabel Park, um, that some of you might know, um, ish. It's a little, it's up on Highway 16, other little green spot. Anyway, up up there in that quadrant. And there we go. There's there's O.P. Schnabel. <laughs> and my parents can't take me to the game. I want to go, so I say I can do this. This is I. I did the math on this and, and gasped in horror. This was 20 years ago. Um, so, shut up, you're the same age. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Um, so, I have my like proto cell phone that's huge and charges like $5 a minute and so you can only use it when you need it. So I have that and I'm totally confident that me and my big truck and my big phone and my written directions on a post-it note, which I promptly drop in the bottom of the truck, are going to get from up there to over there. My dad says, just hop on 1604, go west, and exit onto Highway 16. No problem. So I'm coming down. I get right there, stop, and I see 1604, and I think, perfect, I'm on it. And I go east. <laughs> and I'm going, and I'm thinking, remember, this is 20 years ago. 1604 narrows down to a two-lane road right about here. And we're going and we're going. And I'm thinking, there are, no there are no baseball fields here. I'm not seeing anything. And I get right around here. And then I start doing this. <laughs> and I have a lot of method and a lot of... And basically what I am doing as I creep further and further in, just a little bit into South Sand, is just going and looking for baseball fields and stopping at baseball fields and getting out of my car and asking, is this where the McAllister All-Stars are playing? And they're going, what? No. <laughs> and so finally I stop. And by this time, I have been gone a long time. And my aunt, who's at my cousin's game, is worried. She doesn't know my cell phone number because she wasn't this is $5 a minute time. So she calls my dad, who's at an event in New Braunfels, and says, um, is Becca coming to the game? My dad panics because, yes, she's supposed to be there an hour ago. And he calls me and he says, Becca, where are you? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Go into the gas station, pull into a gas station, gas up your car, Ask the guy, ask the person at the front where you are. And then I want you to leave that gas station where you've just told everyone that you don't know where you are and go find a Walmart or a Target or something and park there in the well-lit place. And what's the next thing he says? Stay there, I'm on my way. And suddenly, 
there was hope. I had been slowly losing hope as I wiggled around and tried different baseball fields all over San Antonio. And as soon as I heard my dad say, I'm on my way, I felt that thrill of hope. And that's what the first Sunday of Advent is all about. It's the moment where God says, for the first time ever, I'm on my way. You probably heard some um, key parallels between my adventure at 20 years ago and Adam and Eve's time in the garden, where they take a wrong turn, at some point realize they've made a wrong turn, and instead of stopping and turning to God, what do they do? They hide. They try to cover themselves. They try every which way to fix it themselves until it's so obvious that they can't fix it themselves. And God says what? He says, where are you? In Genesis 3, God, God is walking in the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? And he finds them, and they have the big confrontation about the, the first sin and how, and Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the snake, and this mess just continues until God says, okay, here are the consequences. You are lost in there, and it's going to be kind of crappy from here on out. But here's the good news. And the good news is this. I'm on my way. So if we can get Genesis 3.15. This is what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium. This is the first speaking of the gospel. This is the first time the good news is given to man. And he says, here's the situation. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. Between your offspring and her offspring her offspring being Jesus, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, some translations say crush his head. They're, ultimately, he's saying, I'm going to rescue mankind. I'm on my way. And so, meanwhile, there's some waiting to be done. Because he didn't say, all right, crush your head right now. My dad didn't material, just magically appear. He had to drive from New Braunfels to some random Walmart on the south side. South, on the, we're on, New Braunfels is northeast. Some random Walmart on the southwest side. It took a long, long time. And so in that waiting time, he gave me some instructions. Fill up the car, wait, keep your car, keep the car on. You know, don't look lost, don't wander around. Um... And that's what God did. He, there are things that we were to be doing while we waited, but ultimately we were waiting. And the Bible is full. This becomes a rhythm in the Bible. A lot of the Bible stories become another picture of man waiting for God to keep his promise. And it's full of stories about people who did that and experienced the blessing of waiting, but it's also full of people who got the waiting wrong. And... Um, I love the Tom Petty song, The Waiting is the Hardest Part. I, um, when I had my daughter, she was two weeks late, and I listened to that song every single day and cried, thinking I'm going to be pregnant for the rest of my life. Um, but I'm not. <laughs> and um, I w it makes me think about all the ways we try to make waiting not the hardest part. We try to alleviate it. First, we try to hurry the fix. Um, in Genesis 16, 1 through 2, 
Um, this is one of the spicier verses in the Bible. Um, we have Abraham and Hagar. Abraham has the promise that he's going to have a son, but it's not happening. It's not happening the way they want. And so they try to hurry the fix. Can we just speed this along? Here's Hagar. She's fertile. Try this. This will give you a son. Um, but that wasn't how God intended to give Abraham a son. The waiting was doing a good work in Abraham, and he tried to rush the fix. This would have been as though I had, I had hung up with my dad and said, I'm just going to go back the way I came and try to meet up with him on the way to speed this along, which would have gone terribly, because I guarantee you my dad was not taking 1604 around San Antonio to get to me. But that's what, I, that's what Abraham and Hagar were doing there. I'm, gonna take, I'm just going to try to meet God halfway. I'm going to try to get this done quicker. Um, then we have ex, in Exodus 32.1, Israel is waiting for Moses to come back down from the law, and they've been told to wait. But they suddenly doubt. Is he coming back? Is, this really gonna, is he going to do what he said he's going to do? And so they build a golden calf. They're testing some alternatives. While we wait, let's just see if these other things will work better. This golden calf is here right now. Let's worship it. Let's, let's try this out. And this would have been as though I had hung up with my dad. He says he's on his way. And then I call another friend. And I'm like, hey, my dad says he's on his way. I don't know. It could take a while. Would you come and help me out instead? Which would have been foolish, obviously, to have two people coming from a different way. And I think we can probably all think of a time in our life when we've done something like that, where you just don't want to wait until you, what you know is coming. And so you try to find an alternative to maybe shortcut it. The next thing we often do is start to react to our circumstances. We're waiting for a solution. And instead of waiting and letting and and meditating and thinking and looking for the best, waiting for the best solution, we start to just treat the symptoms. We start to just kind of play whack-a-mole with all the circumstances that are coming up. Um, this happens a lot in parenting, a lot in marriage, a lot in friendships. Relationships are like this. Instead of doing the hard work of waiting for reconciliation, of waiting for healing as we go through wounds, we start to just try to hit at all the little things. Um, this happened in Numbers 27 through 12. When Moses, in a moment of anger, God has told him how Israel's thirsty and they're whiny. And in the past, God told him to hit a rock and water came out. And he thought, and this time God said, just speak, don't hit the rock. Well, Moses is tired of the people. He's cranky, they're cranky, everybody's cranky. And instead of waiting and doing things God's way, he just whacks the rock. And yes, water comes out, but then Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land because God reminds him, as you wait, you follow my instructions and you're faithful. And that's what waiting is. It's not taking matters into your own hands. And that would have been my analogy for, for my lost situation on highway on uh, 1604 is that if I had just started driving down random roads, if I had just been like, oh, this road is dark, turn, which is kind of actually what I was doing. But it's just this, it's how we get loster and loster. We just start hitting at the next solution and taking what comes up instead of looking at the arc of what, what we're ultimately supposed to be waiting for. And next, um, 
we'll look around us and we'll see what's working for other people. God tells us to wait for him. And instead, we look around and say, well, that's working for them. And I know you told me to wait for you, but that's looking pretty good for them. And we see this in the Bible in the first Samuel 8, 1 through 5, when Israel wants a king. God has been leading Israel. God has been faithful to them. He has, they have lived in a theocracy where God was making the rules. But they looked around and everybody else around them had a king. And things weren't going well for them. And so they said, it'll be better if we can have a king. And so instead of waiting for what God was going to do, they try to rush it. And they try what seems to be working for everybody else. Um, they don't want to wait. And for me, this would have been like if I'd have looked around and been like, oh, there's a lot of cars going that way. Maybe I'll go that way. Maybe they know how to get to O.P. Schnabel Park. Maybe that's where they're going. And I just followed them. Um, and you can see how ridiculous it is in the analogy because none of that would have worked. And yet in our lives, so often we run to those things. We look to our friends and say, I realize that God has called me to faithfulness um, in this area of service, but all of my friends are making a ton of money, and this, this career field seems to be working out for them, and I just don't want to do this harder path. We look at the quick fixes of escaping our problems. It just looks so nice to not have to think about um, this relationship that is broken and difficult, and so I'm just going to peace out. Um, and all of these are, in a way, an attempt to control the situation. What Adam and Eve were doing, what Moses, what Israel, what all Abraham, what they were all doing is trying to take the waiting and control the situation. And the good work of waiting, the reason it is now built into the rhythm of the Christian life is because waiting accomplishes something in our heart. While we wait, we are reminded that we're not in control and that we can't save ourselves. And it's not, hear me clearly, a lot of us have been injured and wounded by people trying to take away our agency. Um, people saying, you don't have a choice. People trying to, to be controlled by someone else. And that's not what I'm talking about here because remember, my dad gave me a list of things I needed to do to be faithful while I waited. I still had agency. He didn't say, all right, I've called, you know, you're on. he didn't somehow magically lock me down and just bind my arms in that situation. While he was waiting, I cleaned out my truck because my dad was about to see my truck and I wanted it clean. I gassed up the car. I went to a well-lighted place. Jesus doesn't say, sit still, don't move, don't breathe until I say so. He gives us a way to be faithful while we wait, but we relinquish the control of needing to save ourselves. We have a freedom to be faithful and to do things because we don't have to worry about whether or not all of these actions will save us. We don't have the burden of control. We have the delight of knowing that someone else is coming to save us. And so we're waiting again, as Drew mentioned. Now we're waiting on the second coming. And we're in what we call the uh, theologians, again, we'll call the already not yet. We have the promise, I'm on my way. When Jesus left the second time, he said, I'm coming back. I'm on my way. 
um, but he's not here yet. So here we are. We're sitting again in our truck on the on what was then a much more rural southwest side of San Antonio, waiting for our dad to drive across the universe to come and get us. And so one of the reasons I think that this is such a beautiful thing for Advent and the, the joy that Advent and the Christmas season starts with this is because actually for a lot of us, the Christmas season highlights the not yet. The Christmas season is when we most profoundly feel out of control, when we most profoundly feel the brokenness, when we're waiting for big things. We're, um, we're waiting to find someone who loves us. We're waiting for a baby. We're waiting for healing physically. We're waiting for healing in our relationships. We're waiting for the end of a deployment. We're waiting for an alcoholic to change. We're waiting for estranged children to return. We're waiting to hear back from a job or a college application. And all of that waiting feels more acute, I think, in the holidays. And Advent is your answer for that. Advent is the time where it says you're supposed to feel that. But you feel it in a way that reminds you that you're taken care of. Because when you feel that longing, you hear the promise, I'm on my way. Your salvation isn't in the, the love that comes along. Your salvation isn't in the babies. It isn't in the job. It isn't in the acceptance letter. It isn't even in the restoration of broken relationships or healing. Your hope is that Christ is on his way. And he's going to make everything new. And so when we feel the longing, we're reminded. It's hard to wait. It's miserable to wait. But we, know, we can wait in hope. And when you hear that, hopefully that the hope, that thrill of hope that is the theme of the Advent um, devotional flickers in your heart. And so a lot of people celebrate Advent with a wreath. Um, at our house, we do a wreath with four candles and one in the center. And each Sunday of Advent, we light a candle. And I love the first, and each Sunday represents a different, um, a different thing that waiting is accomplishing in our heart. It accomplishes hope. We fir first, we hear the promise of God, we wait for it, and we see hope. And that's the first that the table is totally dark. We turn off all the lights and we light that first candle. And that is the first flicker of hope that comes on. And it is, it's representing what's happening in our hearts. The next Sunday, there's two candles lit. It gets a little bit brighter. And that second candle is for faith. Remember I said it didn't take away our agency. It didn't take away our ability to act. We're being faithful because Jesus is coming. I acted differently because I knew my dad was coming. When you're waiting we don't wait with no certainty. That would, be, that would be nuts. That's like that Dr. Seuss, Oh, the Places You'll Go book where he talks about the waiting room. I should have brought that to read it. But it's, he goes through the, the, how silly it is to be waiting for, for something that may or may not come. Without certainty, waiting is absurd because what are you waiting for? But when you know what's coming. When you know salvation is on the way, ma waiting makes perfect sense. And so you can start to act accordingly. 
And that's what faithfulness is. It's acting as though you know that Jesus is on his way. And then the next candle, the next week we light the next candle and that's joy. For me, joy is the energy that comes from the fulfillment of the promise. It's knowing this is going to work out. I am loved. This is, I am kept. God is on his way. And it's the, joy is not really an emotion. It's a disposition. It's a way that we relate to things and, and continuously see how bright the light has gotten. We're three candles in, the light is bright. And that's when you start to feel the excitement and the motivation to go and do with joy. And then finally, you have the peace candle. And that is the reminder. We have all, we have the four candles lit. And that's the reminder that I can stop now. I don't need to wander around. I don't need to try to fix it. He's on his way. And so then we start to have the full light. We don't need to work. It's happening. It's all happening. Um, and then the final light that we light on Christmas is the Christ candle. And that's, he's here. The light is at its fullness on the reef because Christ is here. And that's our hope. That's Advent. So we, today we're starting this journey. This, we're starting this waiting that symbolizes all the ways that we're waiting for God to deliver us, whether we're waiting for him to bring us strength to keep going or whether we're waiting for the final deliverance. In all the millions of ways in our life, Advent is the season where we realize how sacred it is to be asked to wait. And we let it do its good work and we let those candles and those lights grow until we light the Christ candle and it's in its fullness. And so um, I really encourage you guys in this season to think, to feel the melancholy that can come in this season, to feel the joy. For some of us, it's the joy of the first Christmas with something that God has given us that we waited a long time for, and it feels different, and it feels wonderful. But I encourage us to look at our waiting as a sacred act and something that we are faithfully working out as the light grows stronger. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the ways that, that you are constantly rescuing us. Thank you that, thank you for calling us. Thank you for being on your way. Thank you for coming to get us. And thank you for the many, many ways you remind us that that's what's going on. Help us to embrace that in this holiday season and help us to not run away or medicate ourselves away from um, the difficulty of waiting, but instead to listen hard for your voice that says, uh, I am on my way. Amen.